All right. Well, um, coming off of the the heels of Shavuot here, we didn't really talk about that last week, but um, we uh, I know David got baptized. We had people getting baptized at the river. So there were a lot of baptisms that took place here, which is very appropriate for Shavuot. Um, if you remember, Shavuot or Pentecost is when 3,000 were saved, when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And also, it is the time that traditionally is believed, and I think there's some biblical backing of that, that the law was given on Mount Sinai. So it's kind of interesting that 3,000 people died under the law at Shavuot. And then years later, 3,000 people are saved on that same time. And so today in Israel, when they celebrate Shavuot, they do celebrate the giving of the law. Um, and we just realize that it's not just the law, but the spirit as well. So it is the spirit that helps us understand that law. And the law was never done away with, as we remember in Jeremiah 31. Or in Hebrews 8 or 10, where it talks about the new covenant. He promises that I'm going to make a new covenant. But we often forget what that new covenant was. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah at that time. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Which is interesting because Moses hadn't come yet. And they hadn't remained faithful to the covenant. What covenant? Well, the promises of Abraham, of faith and all of that. And he says, this is the covenant I will make with them at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their minds. In other words, part of the new covenant, a very foundation of it is to put the law in our hearts. How? By his spirit. And that's the connection there with Shavuot. So now we are waiting for, uh, that completes the spring festivals. And so now we look forward to the fall festivals. And the fall festivals are all going to be pointing to his second coming. As you know, the spring ones, we saw Passover, Jesus dies. First fruits, Jesus rises from the dead. Shavuot, he gives the Holy Spirit. And next, we get to wait to, to celebrate his second coming in the fall festivals. Well, this is part of that. And this is why we had such a great feast here tonight and why you are all so tired. Because we are in chapter 19 of Revelation where we are seeing the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Now, I cannot talk about the wedding banquet of the Lamb coming up without talking about a wedding. And so we had talked a little bit about this a year ago or so, we're going to give you some more details and refresh your memory on the marriage covenant and how that all worked. The first thing that you need to remember is that when a betrothal took place, for example, with Joseph and Mary, when they were betrothed to get married, they were legally married in a sense. Okay, It's not like us when we get engaged, it's just like, hey, I promise we're going to get married someday. And then we make the wedding day the big event. The betrothal was just as big of an event, if not maybe even more important than the wedding itself. The wedding itself was just kind of a, a finishing out of it, uh, a getting to enjoy it more. Right now, we are betrothed to Christ. And that means that there's no divorce. Um, you are legally bound to him. And any rejection of it from here on out, from your acceptance of Christ, is adultery. And that's something very important to recognize. We have not had the wedding yet. We are only betrothed. The wedding is coming up in Revelation chapter 19. It is coming up for us, I think, in the very near future. I hope in the very near future. So um, anyway, point being, infidelity during this time is considered adultery at the time of betrothal. And so to become betrothed, the man would give a woman an object of value 
declaring her to be set apart. That no other man is going to be looking at you. Put that into the spiritual perspective. God has already then set you apart. Okay, in the case of me and my wife, my special object was a Mr. Misty at Dairy Queen. Okay, that was like, hey, you're mine. And I was letting all the other men in town know she was mine. And if any other man looked at her, I was very jealous. And in many ways, that's why God says not to touch his anointed. Because God is a jealous God. You are now his betrothed. He has given a very important object, which we'll be talking about soon. He has marked you, set you apart. And not only you stepping away from him is adultery, but anybody else trying to sneak in, I pity the fool, right? In the words of the infamous Mr. T. Anyway, so let's just go over this Jewish wedding a little bit because I think it's pretty cool. Um, the, the man that wanted to marry this girl would come to the father of the house bringing three main things. Money, a contract called a ketubah or ketubah, and wine. Those were the three things. After that, there was this betrothal. If the father accepted this, um, there was a, a pouring out of a glass of wine where the woman was given the wine or a choice to make and said, will you accept this betrothal? If she accepted it and drank it, that's when it became legally binding. So, if she didn't drink it, does the dad still keep the money? I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't believe so. <laughs> so, if the father did accept the bride price, um, that's when a betrothal contract was presented and to the woman. And if she accepted that contract, that's when she would drink the wine. Now, at this point, as I've already said, they were considered husband and wife, even though the marriage had not taken place yet. We see a beautiful picture of this in Genesis 24 when we go back and we see that Abraham had arranged his servant to go get a wife for his son. Abraham is a picture of God the Father. The servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit going out. Then Isaac is a picture of the son of God, son of Abraham. And then Rebekah was a picture of the church. And we see that the servant takes a large sum of money and jewels and all kinds of things for a bride price. But as you recall, it wasn't one of these things that Rebecca had to go. Even Laban said, you have to ask her. It's, up to, it's okay with us, but you got to ask her. And she said, yes, I am willing. Now, there's a, a lot of similarities between this and us, the, the bride of Christ. Uh, we'll look at some of those things as we continue. But anyway, it says here in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. We get that a lot. I hear that quoted many times, but it usually stops right there. But the verse continues with something very important. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Once that betrothal was accepted, the contract was accepted, she drank the wine, the next step was for both of them to be baptized, an immersion in water. And here, when talking about husbands and wives and saying this is a picture of Christ in the church, it says that Christ is cleansing her, us, by the washing with water through the word. This is one reason why it is so important that men be leading their households. 
I've talked with many of you about that and how important it is for as men, us to be stepping up and leading our household. That doesn't mean just running the checkbook. As a matter of fact, it doesn't mean that at all. It means, are you cleansing her, washing her with water? Are you making sure the, wa the word is the center of your household? Leading in devotions and in prayer and in just godly living, obeying that word in your household. That is part of it. Because you see, from this point on, as we're going to talk about shortly, once that woman had accepted the contract... There were friends of the bride and friends of the bridegroom that were kind of like accountability partners. And they were there to watch over, to make sure that the woman was doing her job and the friends of the bridegroom doing the same. Almost like a deposit guaranteeing purity and separation until the wedding would come. We read here in 2 Corinthians 1.22, the Holy Spirit basically is that deposit guaranteeing our salvation, that ring, you might say, that is setting us apart, that guidance until the wedding day. It says, he, Jesus or God, the Holy Spirit, sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge a pledge of a good conscience towards God. You see, that Holy Spirit that he has left you now, it doesn't come until you are in that contract with God. Once you have that contract with him, you have accepted it. When you take communion like we just did, you said yes. And then he has given you his spirit as a pledge. I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. And that is exactly what goes on here in these weddings. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might pre present you as a pure virgin to him. That Holy Spirit is what is there not only as a pledge but as a as I said, uh, uh, to set us apart, to watch over, to empower, to give you the strength to make sure that you remain pure and set apart. Jesus, for us, is that bride price, the great price that God paid for us. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So there has been a great bride price paid. And that bride price, Jesus willingly gave his life for you, paying and buying us with his blood. So we don't often look at his blood as being a bride price, but that is exactly what it is. Because Peter will go on and say that he purchased us with his blood. So, Hosea. We often think of Hosea when it comes to marriages. In chapter 2, verses 19 and following, it says, that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So, when there was that betrothal, like I said, there was a set-apart, there was a holiness that was expected. And that's what we're seeing here. I will betroth you to me forever. Betroth you in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. God is loving. We all, we all know that. That's been preached pretty well. But we sometimes forget about righteousness and justice. That God is still a just God. And part of being betrothed means that we too are to be just, loving, compassionate. And these are all characteristics of godly living. 
of being set apart. During the betrothal, it was, as I said, customary for the bride and groom not to see each other on the days before the wedding. How many times do we just beg and plead, God, just show me. I just want to see you. Not how it works. You're not allowed to see them until the day comes. You're set apart. The Talmud records that in the days of the apostles, the friends of the bridegroom would escort the bride to the groom and served as witnesses to keep anything immoral happening between them. And so, again, like I said, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit for us, the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bride. So that spirit that he has left is that conscience that we have when we're tempted to love this world over our spouse, to want to go after other idols rather than just God and so on. Well, so that pretty much covers, you know, going with three things, the contract, the, the money, the wine, the drinking of the wine, and then the baptism. The next thing we want to look at is that ketubah, the, the, the contract. In the contract, it usually stated the price, the bride price, you know, like I'm going to give you three camels or whatever. I know when we were in Israel here probably 10 years ago or so, I think uh, um, Sierra's sister got, I think they offered Johnny three camels or something for the sister, the, the Arabs there up in, by Jericho. or um, So it, it that kind of thing still goes on today. So... <laughs> He couldn't figure out how to get the camels on the airplane, so yeah, turned him down. So, no. Anyway, um, the next thing it was the promises of the groom, and then the rights of the bride. In other words, I promise to do this. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to do all of these things, and here are your rights. You are going to be a loving, submissive wife, and you're going to be able to take care of my children, and you're going to, whatever. So both parties agreed to this contract because both parties were involved in it. God has left us a ketubah, or a ketubah, in his word, the Bible. It states what the bride price was, the cost of sin, the cost of purchasing us, the cost of us not having to die. It states God's promises to us, his faithfulness, and it states what he expects of us. If you love me, you will do what I say. If anyone hates his brother, if anyone does this, if anyone does that, then if you love your mother and your father more than me, then you're not worthy of me. I mean, I'm going to come first. All of these things are stated and laid out in Scripture, just like what would happen in this wedding. Now, the second phase that's coming next was the actual marriage ceremony. And this is where the groom was going to deliver the wedding contract that had already now been signed by the, the bride and the two witnesses, and it is now presented to the world, you might say. And so that is after a long time has passed, usually around a year, but we, nobody really knew the time or the hour. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I find it interesting what the rabbis wrote about marriages in respect to God's word. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, speaking of that, the bride had to accept the offer, just as the Bible tells us that we have to accept Christ's offer. Again, the whole picture we're seeing in a wedding seems to fly in the face of a predestination, some predestined to go to heaven and some predestined to go to hell, that you have a choice to either accept it or not accept it. But the entire festival, or 
festive event of a marriage would last seven days. And because of this, this is what Rabbi, uh, I guess, Abimi, the son of Rabbi Abahu, said. I don't, I don't think this is the Prince Ali guy, but anyway. The, the days of Israel's Messiah shall be 7,000 years as it is written, speaking of Isaiah 62, 5, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. What I find interesting about that is this is one of the reasons that the Jews believed that there would only be 7,000 years of history because God had called them to be his bride. And as it would be a seven-day festive event, there would be seven days to the completion of the wedding. So this is where they get that from Isaiah 62, verse 5. Well, once the marriage took place, which we'll deal with here a little bit more in a minute, then gifts were given. Yes? Question on that last thing. They believe then that's like from the time of Abraham? Or do they believe like... They believe all of creation. They think that, yeah. So it wasn't just from Abraham. And again, 7,000... It, we've talked about this many times in Revelation already. We, you know, maybe six days, and then the millennial reign being the seventh, and each day of creation patterning, patterning a thousand years of history, and so it lines up with that. So they still would go back to Adam as being like that's when yeah. the festivities. When God created, yeah. So um, gifts were given to the bride upon the marriage, and um, the cup of the covenant in Passover is sometimes referred to that. Some Jews see that because there are promises being given. I'm not going to go over the Passover cups, but you remember there are four I will statements. I will do this. I will do that. I will, I will. These are the contract uh, that God has given to you. And in you drinking them, you're accepting that type of thing. But anyway, in Ephesians 4, it says... Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of gift of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. This is speaking of his ascension. When Jesus died, he resurrected, then later he ascended. When he ascended, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. What is that? Well, we've talked about in reference to that maybe being offering the first fruit offering to the Father. Those who had died in the past were taken and given to the Father as first fruits. In essence, almost like a wedding banquet, a wedding had taken place. It hasn't, but presenting them to the Father, there was a union uh, taking them to the Father's house. So, who knows, but a possibility there. 1 Corinthians 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. And it goes on to talk about these. You see, what Christ has done for us is he has given us gifts. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there are many passages in Romans and Corinthians talking about that. Romans saying, we do not all have the same gift. Each of us have different gifts, but are of the same member or the same body. And we are to use those gifts according to the measure of grace given to us. If your gift is teaching, then let him teach. If it is governing, let him govern diligently. If it is uh, um, giving to others, let him give generously. Everybody's got a different gift. But this is a gift given to the bride given to you, just like that bride price. The father was supposed to keep some of that aside for the, the bride. And that's really what God has done. Jesus gave his very blood. God has kept that and is pouring out that gift to you, you might say. Then, after the woman had accepted everything, uh, I kind of... The marriage ceremony technically has not taken place, okay? I messed, uh, they're considered married, 
but the ceremony hasn't taken place yet. The gifts are given to the to the bride, and now then the bridegroom to be goes off and is going to go prepare a place for the future bride to live in. So from this time on, the woman is spending her time preparing to live as a wife and a mother in Israel. Just like God has gone off to his place. He said, if it were not so, in John 14, 1, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That we can live together for an eternity. Well, while that's going on, she is supposed to be training to be a good bride. That is what I keep harping on week after week to you guys, is that we are here for a job, a purpose. Training to be a good bride. In all of our vacations and all of our building projects and all of our um, fashion goals or whatever they may be, don't mean squat to your role as a bride. It isn't about what the stupid wedding looks like. And I know I'm not supposed to say that. It's not a stupid wedding. It is about the wedding and the groom. I, I am throwing every woman under the bus who gets caught up in the wedding over the wedding. It is not about what it looks like. It is not about what the groomsmen or the bridesmen, bridesmaids, or, yeah, I don't even know what goes on in a wedding, okay? Let's face it, most of them haven't trained for anything. Yeah. That's just what men all said. It's how are you going to be a good mother? Those are the things that are important to be investing your time in. How are, are you going to be a good wife? That is what's important to be investing in. Now, I know I need to calm down a little. I understand it's okay. It should be a celebration. It should be beautiful. It's going to be in heaven. But focus is important because if we're more worried about the gold streets of heaven than we are about Jesus, then our focus is off. If we are having stressed out days because of wedding venues or wedding dresses or wedding parties or wedding food, then our focus is off. I get it. We're only human. No, no. Are you getting the look? I'm getting the look. I see the But this is a picture of Christ and the church. And I think we can easily lose that. And this isn't just about a wedding we're about to have. This is about so many weddings that I have seen throughout my life. This is about watching TV and seeing that stupid bride shows and I do mean stupid, uh, bridezillas and uh, whatever they're called, I don't know. I cannot watch those because it infuriates me. Because it has nothing to do with the spiritual aspect of a wedding. It is no different for us to be so distracted by the cares of this world, things going on, and not preparing ourselves for the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We are here to be trained to be the bride of Christ. It is no different. And so keep that in mind. That while the Father is doing his job, or the Son is going and preparing a place for you, you're supposed to be anxiously waiting for him to come back every single day not going and partying and just figure, well, he'll come when he comes. That is a bride that does not have oil in the lamp. That's a bride that's going to get caught off guard. 
because the focus is not on the groom coming back. So, Jesus, I can't wait to see the place that he has prepared for us. That's exciting. I mean, I think about Eden. They're excited about this place that they have in Texas. And, you know, I, I remember our first house. I remember how exciting it was to, to have a place together. Our first home, and we get to live together. And it was just, it was awesome. And that's what this is going to be like. You know, we often wonder about what heaven will be, but I, I think that there's a lot of similarities. This is a picture of what heaven is to be. It should be that excitement. It should be something that's very tangible, and I think it's going to be. Well, um, I think this is kind of neat. If one would ask the groom wedding, when the wedding was to be, his answer, from what I've read, was, only my father knows. Because it was the father who got to say when the house was complete. It was the father who got to say, yes, you're ready. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus said, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but only the Father. I think this was of the groom. Um, so, bottom line, the, the father gets to make the choice when it's time. That goes nicely with Jesus doing nothing that the father, you know, unless the father willed it and all of those kind of things as well. But the father had to give the approval because usually what would happen is then the Oftentimes the man would build onto his father's house and they would be connected and then the father would be able to say, yes, this is good. Or he said, no, that is not acceptable for your wife. You know, and hopefully he didn't have to do that. Great idea. That? Yeah. yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> That's why this room was built. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a dog came a lot back here that <laughs> needs a little improvement yet, but electric space here. So <clears throat> while the, the sun was doing all of that, the, the father was building a hoopah for the wedding. We've talked about the hoopah before. This basically if you've ever seen a Jewish wedding, it's almost, you know, pillars with kind of a what do you call archway over it, kind of like a tent. And we've talked about this as we've studied Revelation. It seems to be that God is going to make a hoopah over Jerusalem. And that that's going to be there when Jesus comes back. We are taken to Jerusalem because we're getting ready for a wedding. That there will be a hoopah, a protection there as well. And so... I don't think it's a coincidence that Isaiah said in the Messianic age that God would spread this hoopah over Jerusalem. Here in Isaiah chapter 4, it says in verse 5 and 6, Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Literally, hoopah. So, Kind of a neat parallel there as well. Then, when it was ready, the house had its approval, the hoopah is finished, the father would say, it is time. And so there would be great celebration in the streets when there was the sound of trumpets blowing, a shofar. Now keep in mind, small town back then, there would be a lot of people who would forget about it, but one, and usually this always was at night, one night you hear the shofar blowing, 
a certain thing. Everybody knew what was going on. <gasps> He's going to get his bride. He's going to get his bride. And they would come out to see this procession and all the excitement there. And this is kind of where we get the parable of the ten virgins, five being ready and five not being ready. In the middle of the night, all of these things happening. And so what a beautiful picture of what Scripture says is supposed to happen for us, that it's at the sound of the trumpet that our groom is going to come for us, the bride, at the sound of a trumpet. And there's going to be rejoicing in the streets. And you're not going to have to wonder, as lightning is seen from the east and the west, you don't have to say, well, is that him? Is that him? You're going to know. You're just going to know. Everybody knows that's the groom coming for the bride. That'll be exciting. So at this point, then, both the bride and the groom are adorned with a crown. We read here in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. A crown for those who have longed for his appearing, waiting for him just like a bride and a bridegroom. We also read in James, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. For his loved ones. This isn't for the world. It's only for his loved ones, only for his bride. And so, um, the groom would wear what uh, was called a kittle. We see that in the fall festivals as well, a white garment. And it's worn on Yom Kippur, basically, just a white robe, and that white represents righteousness, clean, purity, that kind of thing. Likewise, in our country, brides used to wear white, and it meant something. And if you had been unfaithful before, you didn't wear white because it meant something. Now it makes no difference. You just wear whatever you want, and white doesn't mean anything. To me, it still means something. Because to God, it means something. And we're going to see that here in chapter 19, that God is going to give you white garments to wear. And that white robe stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, your purity. And that purity is coming from Christ himself. We read in Matthew 23, 39, For I say to you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the groom arrived at the hoopah, he was welcomed, supposedly, at least according to Jewish writings, with the words, Blessed is he who comes. And yet this is what Jesus said, we're going to say when he comes back for his bride. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So... In some cases, they will have the bride walk seven circles around the groom, which some say is reminiscent of the seven circles around the altar in the temple at Sukkot, which again, fall festival, when the Lord's supposed to be coming back to, to receive his bride. Um, Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho seven times, and this story is simply uh, a, a symbol as well of the Lord's return and our entrance into the promised land uh, with the sound of the trumpet, all of that as well. There's also the smashing of the glass that you often see. That was a tradition that seemed to be added later. Uh, goes back to Talmudic times and for the most part has been seen as a reminder for people not to drink too much. Smashing of the glass. Um, others say it's a reminder of the destruction of the temple. But um, anyway, just the smashing of the glasses, that something that was added later as well. Um, Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Sometimes it's easy to forget that. 
Sometimes it's easy for me to think about how I'm going to feel getting to see God, how I'm going to feel getting to get to heaven, when I forget God loves me. God loves me so much. He is also looking forward to this day. That's a good thought. We need to be reminded of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. Right? And so he is going to rejoice over you as well. It says in Revelation 19, skipping before we get there, in verses 7 through 9, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So we've already kind of touched on that being their righteousness and being set apart. So um, from this point, the groom stealing away his bride is going to take her to the chamber where the marriage will be consummated while the father is, is announcing the marriage, I guess. At the end of this seven-day period, the couple is going to emerge from their chamber and partake of a great wedding feast that has been prepared. So this fits nicely where we see people being caught up to Jerusalem or what sometimes we call the rapture with the Lord to be sequestered before the wedding banquet. And so this might answer your question as well that you've got this consummation, but it's after they come out that the feast takes place. So everybody knows the wedding is there. This is the, the feast is a celebration post-wedding. And what we have talked about here in Revelation is at some point that sweeping away, being caught up, that rapture, and we've proposed the idea of it taking us to Jerusalem. We see the hoopah. We're seeing that we are being sequestered, but the wedding banquet hasn't taken place, but we've already read about this. And so it's after this sequestering that the wedding, the actual banquet and feast takes place. And that's what we're going to see here in Revelation. Now, the feast is seven days. How many days is the Feast of Tabernacles? Seven days. There's an eighth day tagged on, of course, but it's a seven-day festival. So, again, some very interesting Feast of Tabernacles, the Sukkot, the protection, the sequestering, all of those picturing uh, preparation to or foretaste of the wedding banquet. So, getting into Revelation now, that just running through those things, we get to verse 9 of 19 is where we left off last week. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Should maybe put that up for you. Um, <clears throat> That is right in line what we see in Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. That's talking about this parable of the wedding banquet. That's why we had this great feast tonight, is to remember and to point to this very thing. But remember that at this wedding banquet, many were invited, but not all of them came. Before Jesus began telling this parable, others recognized what a blessing that day would be in saying this, basically. And this is possible since in, in uh, John chapter 7, verse 4, or no, in Revelation 7, verse 4, John didn't know who the saints were. 
Remember that they were up there, and he said, who are these? And he says, uh, these are those who have been slain or something. I don't know. Some say that that could be a connection that didn't recognize some of them. I, I think that's a stretch, but it's just some of the commentary has said that. Um, anyway, point being here is just like what we see in Luke, those who are invited to this wedding banquet, we're blessed. We're blessed right now. And as long as we don't get caught up in preparation for the wedding and we are focused on preparation for the groom, you're going to experience those blessings in this life. Notice, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. It hasn't even happened. You're, in, you're being called to the supper. You are blessed. We are blessed how dare we, and I'm the first to be guilty of this, but how dare we complain in this life? Because we are blessed. We have been called to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we have the gall to complain because my car broke down, or I can't get this job done, or I can't get that job done, or this person hates me, or whatever. We're blessed. Don't forget that. When John falls at the feet of this angel, it seems, to, to worship him, I'm giving John the benefit of the doubt that they did not know. You know, he did not know that this was, you know, not God, that it was an angel. I don't think John would ever do that. But in any case... The message we see is angels are not deserving, worthy, or should have prayer. Saints should not have prayer being given to them. And so when in Catholicism we have people praying to Mary or to saints, this is a good verse to say, no, 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 no. And they say, well, we're not really praying to them, we're praying through them. Like, Mary is very close to God, and therefore Mary intercedes for us. You see, we can go to Mary, Mary will take those prayers to God. No, no, no. Timothy said there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. And that's why here as well we see, no, you don't need an angel to go tell, hey, you know, go tell God this. So, dead or alive, they should not receive any prayer. Um, these verses close out by preaching uh, about Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And I think that's very important, revealing truth in the word, because Jesus is the word, is prophecy. So don't get caught up in end time prophecy centered on which country is going to do what and who the Antichrist is going to be. I'm not saying you can't look at that and Inspect it, but don't get caught up in it. Because Christ is the center. Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Not Russia, not the Antichrist. Jesus. And I was speaking with somebody, I don't remember who recently here about, but just how easy it is for many of this, the Hebrew root movements to get off because Christ is not the focus. What becomes the focus is, am I doing this on the right day? Am I doing this uh, in the right way? Um, you know, just all these little tidbits. Again, it's okay to study them. It's okay, but if you're getting caught up in that when God wasn't specific about certain things and things can be seen differently in Scripture then we lose focus of Christ. The real question you should be asking is, why this day? Not, are you sure this is the day? But why this day? How does Christ fit into this day? And when Christ remains the focus of the law, the law is beautiful. You take Christ out of the law, the law becomes ugly, legalistic, and brings death. 
But if Christ is what is the point of the law and it's pointing to him, then you've got it right. The law is not the problem. It's how you view the law. Is it Christ the center, the word, or not? And so keep that in mind. Um, the Old Testament is really all prophecy about him. That's why on the road to Emmaus, he reasoned with them from the law and the prophets, those things concerning himself. That's how he could do that, because he understood the Old Testament properly, unlike most people in the church today. Anyway, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So, heaven is opened, a white horse. We saw a white horse earlier. But that was the Antichrist. Had a different crown on. This crown is the kingly crown. And the, the word is different from that first horse, the white horse of the first seal being opened, and this horse. This is God. And he is judging in you know righteousness, truth, faithfulness. Um, that's an important phrase because, as we've talked about before, many people get a little bit angry with God because how could a loving God, you know, allow all these bad things? And, you know, a loving God's not going to send this person to hell and all of those type of things. Well, as you know, Ray Comfort is great about talking about that. Try that in the civil courts. It wouldn't work telling a judge that, hey, you know, you should let this murderer go because you're a good person. Well, no, he wouldn't be a good person to do that. Stating that this, that our groom is coming and he's sitting on a white horse called, or in, he who sat on the white horse is called faithful, true, and is judging with righteousness, making war in righteousness means it's good. And Isaiah 11.4 says, with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the word. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Or in Psalm 96, 13, they will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. This seems to be judging sinfulness. Kind of a, a jealous groom. And all of his judgments are based on the word of God, which means it's true, it's just, it's right. Verse 12 says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. That includes the law, the prophets, the Psalms, maybe. <laughs> it includes all of the New Testament. His eyes like flames of fire, we've talked about that. Justice, judgment. He's coming to make war. His eyes see the hearts of men. You can't hide anything from him. You can't hide your motives. <clears throat> the name written on him that no one knew except himself. We've talked about there's a name that nobody has been able to blaspheme. A name that has never come across the lips of man to, to uglify it or whatever. The crowns on his head showing him to be king of kings. Now the blood, the robe dipped in blood, has two different possibilities here that I've seen. Some believe that this is his own blood, reminding us of the great sacrifice that it took 
to make you his. Others say that this is not his own blood, but the blood of those he has just judged in righteousness. Because it has spattered his garments. And we just saw that he had the right to do so. We read in Isaiah 63 here, Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. So either one would probably be acceptable. I kind of tend to think because of the context here, his eyes like flaming fire and he is just in his judgments to make war, that being clothed with a robe dipped in blood seems to fit the context of what Isaiah 63 is talking about. Some will say, yeah, but it says that nobody was with him, and when he comes back, the saints come with him to judge, so that it must be the blood of Christ as a reminder. Possible. Being dipped in blood seems to be more sacrificial than the judgment, not splattered. I don't know. But, like I said, I think either one works. But the name being on him, the word of God, leaves no room for doubt as to who this person is. He is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and that word that became flesh to dwell among us, that word that ascended into heaven to go and prepare a place for you, that word of God who is faithful to his ketubah and is coming back for you, that cannot break that contract, who will not be adulterous or an adulterer, who is faithful even when we are not, in that word of God that is coming back to celebrate. And by the way, with two witnesses, remember that contract was signed by two witnesses. Revelation 11 has two witnesses as well. All of this is the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And... <clears throat> While I don't know why the Jews did what they did and how these traditions came about, it sure seems to fit what we're seeing scripturally. Either God had that come about to be a picture for you, or he did it because, well, I know you're going to do this, so I'm going to make a picture. I kind of think he had those things come about because he is saying over in scripture a number of times, that a marriage here on earth is a picture of your relationship with him. And all of this judgment, you know what, guys? You too are here to protect your bride. You are here to stand up for them. You are to be jealous. Other men should not talk to your wife in ways that would be uh, inappropriate. You're to... There's a righteous anger that can come up to protect your spouse. Because that's what we're seeing here, I think, is God coming back and he's saying, you tried to steal my spouse. You tried to defile her. You tried to take her away from me. And this is what you're going to get. As a man who was very jealous of my wife, she doesn't think I was, which I just am amazed by that because, man, there were times my heart was, my blood was boiling. But I get that. You know, it's one thing to be angry at the evils that are going on. It's another to be angry because somebody has tried to, to hurt or harm or take your spouse. And I think most men in this room can understand that. That just compounds the just and righteous wrath of God in my mind. But 
anyway. Yeah. So, um, we have a bridegroom coming. Let's not get focused on the world. Let's not get focused on anything but preparing and training ourselves to be the bride that we are called to be. We're going to sing a couple of songs here to close out tonight to kind of celebrate this as well. Yeah, go ahead and have the kids come over. Do you want to text them? And so we'll close out by just singing a few songs. Um, I'm going to pray, but just to kind of keep that, the spirit of excitement and the bride coming back, the bridegroom coming back for his bride in mind. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for loving us, for giving us a picture here on earth of what's going on in heaven. Lord, we ask that um, we be patient, that we be excited and keep the oil in our lamps. Keep it burning, 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 because we look forward to the day that you come back. In the meantime, may your spirit, your servant who has, you have left for us to set us apart and to prepare us, may we recognize and hear and understand that spirit. The gifts that you have given us, may we use them wisely. And may we prepare ourselves for this great day. We cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for you, we wait for you. And we look forward to the wedding banquet that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.